title my message this morning as has Jesus moved into your neighborhood that was news to you <laughs> how would you feel if the news came around that Jesus has moved into your neighborhood would you feel great how would you feel upset hey he's moved he'll watch me what's happening to me the passage that i'm sharing with you this morning is two verses from john's gospel john chapter 1 and verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth now if you notice this is john's introduction to the christmas event quite different isn't it you know matthew mark and luke speak about the nativity scene little baby jesus shepherds abiding in the fields wise men coming a little later and that's what we associate christmas with all about isn't it and as a result once all those things are over nativity scenes are over christmas is forgotten now john puts it across a little different from a philosophical if you were to say sense he overlooks if you were to say the regular biblical stories and then he describes the incarnation in a philosophical prose now you may wonder how did i get this title for this message about jesus moving into the neighborhood the message translation of john chapter 1 and verse 14 reads like this the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood we saw the glory with our own eyes the one of a kind glory like father like son generous inside and out true from start to finish what a difference isn't it when you understand it from its true meaning now two verses we are going to do this morning and the whole outline has been given to you we are going to progress in this direction why did john address jesus as the word what are the implications of that what does john mean when he says the word became flesh what are the implications of that and what does it mean when jesus moved into our neighborhood what are the implications of that that god wants to move into our neighborhood through his life in us that is the message of christmas if you forgot on everything you know and say oh nativity is over festivals are over that's it no the purpose of jesus coming into this world is to move into our neighborhood and if the world is not seeing jesus in our lives something is wrong somewhere and as we understand these two verses i hope some principles you will be able to grasp so that not only during this season but equally in the new year our lives will show forth radiate for the very glory of god to the neighborhood around us who are searching for god in all the wrong places so first of all why is jesus called the word john chapter 1 and verse 1 is actually the most compact 
and pulsating theological statement in all of scripture. In fact, we can't really fully do justice to just that one verse, even if we studied it for all our lives. So we can't do justice in a half an hour's time. Okay. So we're going to skim through the surface. If you were to say, you know, to get your appetite aroused, to understand why John puts it across this way, so that we would also understand what God's expectation of us is today in the world that we live in. Now, what's in a word? What's in a word? A word is an audible or a visual expression of a thought. Now, thoughts are incommunicable until they are put into words, right? Now, these are thoughts that are there in my head. Now, I want to communicate these thoughts to you, but I have to make sure that I use the right words so that what is up here will come into your heart in a way that you have understood it. I can use words that you don't understand. It won't make sense to you, isn't it? So using the right words in communication is very, very important. So when you're thinking about communicating the message to this last world, right words are important. Now, the word that is used for word in Greek is logos. I'm sure you're familiar with that word. And the root word for that is lego. Have you heard of lego bricks? Okay. Now, the root word lego, actually, from there comes the English word logic and logical. Okay. So, when you're thinking about the word, you're thinking about reason. You're thinking about something that you're speaking, which makes two and two four, which makes sense to you. So John, in his declaration of who Jesus is, or to present the Christmas message, is trying to help his audience understand who Jesus is through the use of this one word logos or one word word. Now, in English, when he writes it, he starts off in the beginning was the word okay and the w is in a capital format in other words he's right from the very beginning he's emphasizing who jesus is now for the jew when they thought about the logos old testament they thought about the power of god john chapter 1 and verse 1 is similar to which was Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, which speaks about the power of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he create it? He spoke and it came into being. So for the Jew, the Jew understood the word logos as the power of God. Now the Greeks understood it differently. The Greeks understood it as the reason the principle behind everything. Okay? Like tell you for example, some people will think about you know, God as a force. Okay? So now when John is trying to communicate who Jesus is, he's using this word logos so that the Jew would understand that he's more than just a power. The Greeks would understand that he's more than just a principle. Who is Jesus? He is a person. Who is God? He is a person. He is not a principle. He is not a concept. 
Neither is he a myth. He is real. He is a person. So in just that one word, word, he is able to communicate both to the Jew, to the Greek, and to our audience today, the divinity of who Jesus really is. Words are important. Now, if we have to communicate to the non-Christian world today who Jesus is, we have to use our words correctly. If we say Jesus saves, for us, we would understand it. For the non-believer, he will ask the question, in which bank does he save? Because he doesn't understand saves. He understands saves only in a savings account. Okay? If we use the word born again, we understand it. But for the Hindu, he will think about, yeah, I'm looking for freedom from the cycle of being born again. We may talk about redemption and salvation. We speak about salvation. We understand it in the way we understand it. For him, for a non-believer, word salvation is different. So when you're thinking about communicating the message of Jesus to this lost world, make sure you use the right words. Do some exercises on your own. In your youth fellowship, in your meetings, life groups, try and do an exercise of communicating the gospel using non-biblical words. Sometimes we find it very difficult because we are used to it, right? But put yourself in the non-believer's shoes. That's what John is doing over here. He's saying, I want to communicate the message of who Jesus is. Logos is a word. This is how they understand it. This is how they understand it. I'm putting it together and explaining who Jesus really is. So John continues and says, and the word was with God. This capital W, you know, was with God. The literal understanding is the word was facing with God. Face to face. In other words, not the same, different. Same person, different. Essence the same, two different. Now, that's a whole lot of theological content in that, isn't it? So when John is saying in the beginning, right from the very beginning, this word existed. And this word who is Jesus existed with God. He was in a close, intimate relationship with God, a face-to-face relationship with God. The concept of the triuneness of God comes in Genesis itself also, isn't it? When the Lord said, let us make man in our image. Fourthly, he affirms this thought or this truth. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was God. Clear distinction or clear emphasis. The word was God. No doubt about it. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like that. Because for the Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is a created being. You know, He is lower than God. G with a small g. Charles Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses movement, said... God has shown him that there are mistakes in the Bible that should be corrected. So he actually rewrote the Bible. 
So, in the Jehovah's Witness edition, their Bible, by the way, will have Watchtower publications, any Watchtower publications like Awake, which is their magazine, or the, you know, the Bible will have written Watchtower. John chapter 1 and verse 1 reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Just introduction of one single letter A. It makes a big difference, isn't it? You know, that he was not God, he was a God. And that's what he has done with all other passages of scripture which speak about the divinity of Jesus. But John is declaring, word was God. He was not a God, he was God himself. Okay, And if in case, you know, you still have not grasped it, he concludes by saying, he was with God from the very beginning. The same thoughts is put together in a nutshell in these statements. He was with God. In other words, the word or Jesus that he's speaking about is not a concept, is not a principle, but he is a person. He was with God from the very beginning. In other words, from the very beginning, Jesus has always existed as God. That is the divinity of Christ that he wants to get across to us. Other gospels speaks about the starting point as the humanity of Christ. But John is starting off from the divinity of Christ that Jesus is God. Now, he doesn't stop with that. Verse 14 moves on further when he says, this word became flesh. This word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now for the Greeks, this was something that they could not swallow. Because for the Greeks, the body was sinful. Because they are talking about principles. Okay, Body, something that is material, is evil. So here John is coming and saying, this principle whom we have been talking about, this principle is now a person, he has taken upon himself flesh and blood. Now that was strange news to them. It's like those people who are speaking about, may the force be with you. Okay, And suddenly John comes around and says, that which you have been talking about as a force is actually a person. That would have shocked them, isn't it? You know? Or you speak about the man up there, you know. John is saying, hey, you're talking about the man up there. He's actually down here. He came down and lived among us. So he's communicating the truth of the gospel in words that they can understand on one side to correct them. On the other hand, also to give them the right information. So John chapter 1 and verse 14, you know, completes his introduction about who Jesus is, that He is a human in the midst of his divinity. And this is the truth actually behind all the nativity scene. If we stop with only baby Jesus, if we stop only with the nativity scene, we have missed the whole emphasis of Christmas, isn't it? Christmas doesn't start here. Christmas starts there. It was in the heart of God to reveal himself to us. 
how can God communicate himself to us? That was his, if you were to say a dilemma. We can't say God had a dilemma. But if God had to communicate himself to us human beings, the thoughts of God, the mind of God, he said it can be done only when he becomes a human to relate to us. And that is why the word became flesh. So when you're thinking about the word becoming flesh, there are four things that is the implications. And also, when there's four aspects of the word becoming flesh, God also wants us to make sure that we also become natural flesh, you know, to people in the neighborhood, that they can understand, hey, we are also normal human beings. For some people, Christianity is like a pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. They only think about the other world. They are not talking about something here on earth. And if you are only talking to people about if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven. Say, hey, you know, what about here? You know, so they have to see the life of Jesus, how we live it here on earth. That is to become visible to them. That is what it become, what it means to say the word has to become flesh that they can see and relate to. Four things. Number one, Jesus became human. Jesus became human. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word. Now John chapter 1 and verse 14, what did it say? The word became. That which was from the very beginning now became flesh. It doesn't say the word was made flesh. It says the word became flesh. In other words, Jesus was not created and then suddenly somewhere along the line he recognized he was divine. No, the divine became a man. That is the emphasis of the Christian message that we have to communicate. Now, a couple of a little more intricate aspects of that. You know, in verse 1, when it says, in the beginning was the word, in Greek it is the imperfect tense, which indicates a continuing action in the past and also one of continuing existence. In other words, in the beginning was the word, and it continues to be the word. Okay, That's the imperfect tense that is used there. But when it comes to verse 14, when it says the word became flesh, the tense that is used is, in Greek it is called an aorist tense. Basically it means something that's had a start off, but the impact of that has continued on. The first one was always there. The second one had a start off. It was an event. So Aorist tense indicates an action that took place in a point of time. So the eternal word became a man and has continued to have that human nature with him. Now, what does it mean he continues to have a new human nature? First of all, let us understand what human nature is all about. When he says somebody is a human being, we speak about three parts of a person. We speak about their body, we speak about their soul, and we speak about their spirit. We do understand it, look at it, the three concentric circles. In the innermost part is the spirit, which is the God-conscious part. Outer is the soul, which is the 
personality of man, okay? It is seen, your emotions, your intellect, and your will. That is a self-conscious part of man. And the body is the expression of that which is inside. So when Jesus was here on earth, was he a fully human being? Let's look at it first of all. Did he have a body? How did you know he had a body? People saw him, okay? They could have seen a hallucination. He could feel pain. He was crucified, okay? Yes. <laughs> Simple things about a body. He was tired. He slept. He ate, right? Those are physical aspects, okay? Now, what about the, the soul? Soul comprises of your emotions, your intellect, and your will. That's the personality. Some are different, different personalities, highly emotional. Some are highly intellectual. Some are highly strong-willed people. Okay, that's your you know, personality. So let's look at it first of all. Did Jesus have emotions? How do we know? He cried. He was angry. <laughs> okay. So he had emotions. You know? What about his intellect? Did he have an intellect? How do you know? He spoke to Pharisees. They tried to you know, trip him. He was able to counter them. And the response of the people was, never man spake like this man. Right? He had an intellect. He could. And when he was 12 years old, what was he doing? He was reasoning with the scribes and Pharisees. He knew his stuff. Okay. Now, what about the third aspect? Did he have a will? How do you know he had a will? Okay, he said, I've not come to do my will. So there was a will involved. Okay. When it comes to going to the cross, even at the Garden of Gethsemane, that prayer that he makes, and even when he has to go to the cross, the Bible tells us he set his face towards Jerusalem as a flint or as a rock. That's his will, right? So he definitely had a personality. What about the third pass aspect? Human spirit. Did he have the human spirit or did he have the Holy Spirit? Just speaking about his human nature, okay? <laughs> Some people think that the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was baptized. That's the time he had the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Some people say, no, he didn't have any human spirit. He only had a Holy Spirit. Now, how do we know we have a human spirit? What did we say the human spirit was? The God-conscious part of it. The desire to relate with God. Did Jesus do it in any way? How did he do that? He prayed, right? He prayed. As humans we pray. God doesn't have to pray. He is God. Oftentimes you may have that question. Why did Jesus have to pray? Because he was fully human. So when you are thinking about these three aspects, yes, he was fully human. So when we speak about the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it basically means he was 100% human. Now, it's not 50-50, remember? It's not when Jesus came down to earth, he set aside his divinity and became totally man. And when he was baptized, Godhead came into him. No, no. Right from the very beginning, the word became flesh. God took upon himself this second nature and he has 100% humanity, 100% divinity. Word became flesh. Jesus did not cease to be God when he became a man. He added humanity but did not subtract divinity. 
we must definitely remember this. Secondly, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. The word literally means to pitch a tent. To pitch a tent. Now, the word tabernacle in the Old Testament is also called as the tent of meeting. Okay. Now, the tabernacle was a place in which the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt, came and resided. So when John is writing to this audience, he says, this word became flesh, became a man and dwelt among us. Now, when you're using this word dwelt among us or built a tent around us, the understanding of a tent means something that is not fully sealed whereby you can get an easy access. In other words, when Jesus came into this world, the desire of Jesus was that he would live, live among us. Not by setting up a boundary wall. Have you been to homes in which they have huge high walls? What does that mean? No entry, right? You also have places where there's no compound wall only. Okay. If you go to villages, you have, even the doors are open, you know. Here we have lock and doors and grills so that nobody can enter in. And some places, open. Now that's the understanding of a tent. When Jesus came and dwelt among us, he didn't say, I'm coming and putting a wall. Now, if you want to, you can knock and come in. Now he says, I've come in so that you, now you have an easy access. The temple, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent in two. Why? Signifying that we now have a direct access. Thirdly, the scripture tells us, Jesus revealed his glory. Jesus revealed his glory. He says, we have seen his glory. The glory as of the one and only who came from the Father. When it says, we have seen the word that is used there for seen is a word that speaks about gazing. Again, from that word, we get the English word theater. When we watch a movie, when we watch something on the screen or the play, we are gazing you know, at that which is in front. Now, that's the word. We saw, we gazed. When we look at Jesus, when he was here on earth, we saw the glory of God. No, that's what John writes in his epistle. That which we have seen, which we have heard, which our hands have handled, we declare to you. In other words, Jesus is saying he made himself in a relational way so that we can draw close to him. And John is declaring we saw his glory. Now, if Jesus has to move into our neighborhoods, first of all, he has to become flesh. We have to be open. Our lives have to be like tents, okay? And people have to see God's glory in us, okay? When Jesus stepped out from heaven into earth, people saw his glory. Right from the very, very beginning, isn't it? The shepherds in the fields, the wise men who came, they saw that this was someone who was different. When you and I step out of our homes, in our neighborhood, do people recognize that we are different? Are people gazing on us to find out if we are different? 
Does it happen if you move into a new neighborhood as soon as you open your door, the other door opens to find out who has come in? <laughs> That's gazing. They're looking. Whether you like it or not, people are looking. People are gazing. But the issue is, what do they see when they gaze at you? Do they see just another person? Do they see similar reactions as the people of the world? Or are they able to see that there is something different? Are they able to see the glory of God in our lives? That is the expectation and that's what God wants to be done in our lives. The word that is used there, as I mentioned, is to gaze. Jesus uses that same word when it comes to John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? Now, same word. You went into the wilderness to look at gaze and to gaze at John. What were your expectations? And that's the question that the world wants us to know as well. We are looking at you. We have certain expectations. Are we fulfilling those expectations? Does the non-Christian world have expectations of the Christian? Yes or no? They expect that we should be different because after all our master is loving. After all our master sacrificed his life. The judges in the court will definitely make the statement, hey, your word says you should be checking it out among yourselves. Why are you coming to me? The non-Christian world knows the expectations of the Christian. But the question is, when they are looking at our lives, are they seeing that? Are they seeing that? When they saw Jesus, they saw his glory. And then it moves on further and explains that glory by saying this glory was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And this word which became flesh, which the people saw the glory, Jesus now gives an invitation and says, hey, see for yourself, taste it for yourself. Two words that describe it. As I mentioned Eugene Peterson's translation of that, generous inside and out. That's the understanding of grace and truth. Now grace, Greek word charis in the New Testament, is the use in the Old Testament of the word hesed in Hebrew, which basically means God's loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness. God's loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness. The grace of God is immeasurable. God does not give us his grace in teaspoons. He gives us his grace not only in buckets. You know? He gives us his grace like the Niagara Falls. That is the grace of God. Immeasurable. So full of grace and truth. That is what he is speaking about. Now grace is the irresistible compulsion to give to people more than they deserve which springs spontaneously from the boundless generosity of God. That's what grace is. And when we have to allow Jesus to move into the neighborhood through our lives, we have to be people of grace. And grace means what? Giving to people more than they deserve. What is our calculation of giving? Not even what they deserve. 
more than they deserve. Oftentimes he make that calculation, isn't it? He did this to me, she said this to me, so I won't do this for that person. That's not grace. That's not grace. Jesus is saying, if he was full of grace and truth, he's asking you and me in our Christian lives to be individuals who show that undeserved favor to people around us who don't deserve it. They have wronged you. What do you do? Show grace to them. Now when you do that, what happens? They say, they gaze at your life. Something is wrong with this person. Something is different about this person. Then they are able to see the glory of God. Then they are able to see who Jesus really is. Then they are able to see Jesus, the word becoming flesh in your life. Truth, on the other hand, has roots in a divine determination to be consistent, predictable, and thereby trustworthy in dealing with mankind. Truth basically says consistency. Not one thing one day and another thing another day. Trustworthy. Now people are looking for individuals who can be trustworthy, isn't it? In this fallen world that we live in, where people are constantly pulling the wool over the other person's eyes, the question is, they are looking for people who would be trustworthy. Can I trust in this person? Do you have people around you who will say that of you? I can trust this individual. When this person says something, it is true. When this person says, I will do it, he or she will do it. Trustworthy. That is what the world is looking for. And when they find that, that we are not individuals who are in a game to forget their support, but we are people who are willing to be trustworthy, that makes a big, big difference. The world is looking for grace and truth. Remember, we are living in a very fractured world, isn't it? Fractured world with hearts that are broken, hearts that are suffering. And during this Christmas season, grace and truth can bring healing to this broken world. Grace and truth communicates to this broken world that life is not over. You are worth something. Life is not over. You can have a new beginning. I am there for you. God is there for you. And in this world where so many suicides are there all the time, so many individuals feel nobody loves me, nobody cares for me, nobody understands me. Is there really a God? You and I have been called to tell this world, yes, there is a God. Not someone who is way up there, but someone who came down to earth. Someone who became flesh and blood for us. He has moved into our neighborhood. Now, the Greek word that is used there for tent is basically the word skenu. Okay? Now, early Greek actors used tents as changing boots for their performances. And eventually, when scenic backdrops were used for place. What they did was, you know, the same word was used for the changing props. So they changed the scene. That scenic background was also called a skinny, a tent, because it was a flap of cloth. Okay? And from there, it moved further, and the same word, S-K-E-N-E, became S-C. 
E-N-E, that is scene, okay? So if there had to be a change of scenes in the background, that's the word that is used. So pitching the tent basically is saying changing of the background. Can your neighborhood change? Can your neighborhood change? Who can change your neighborhood? You and I, if we are living the right type of life. That is what pitching the tent is all about. So it implies, pitching the tent, that God wants to have an open house with us. God wants to become familiar with us. He knew exactly where this familiarity will lead him. Where did it lead him? To the cross. Why don't we become open and familiar to people? Why don't we get too close to people? Because we'll get hurt. Right? We keep our distance. We put our walls. Why? I don't want to get hurt. Jesus knew that pitching his tent here on earth, being open and familiar, asking us to be involved, is going to lead him to the cross. But he was willing to do it for us. That is what the message is all about. Let's move further. Why did Jesus move into this neighborhood? When you move into a new neighborhood, what do you look for? I'm sure you all have shifted houses. Better facilities. They often say three important things in finding houses. Location, location, location. You know? <laughs> location in terms of, you know, maybe is there a school nearby? Is there a market nearby? Is there a station nearby? And, uh, in other words, basically, which is more comfortable? Maybe you're looking for a bigger house, more comforts. That is what we are speaking about in neighborhood. But when Jesus moved from his neighborhood to our neighborhood, what are the difference? It was a step down. (laughs) It was not a step up. Normally when you think about changing neighborhoods, you're looking at a step up. But for him, it was definitely a step down. When Jesus moved into into our neighborhood, it was not because it was a great place to live in. It was very much a step down from his previous residence. But he did it all for us. To be with us. He did it because he was on a rescue mission to save us. And to bring us into his family. He knew how it was all going to end. But he did it because he wants to save us. Now, God is saying, I want you to be open in your neighborhood. So that... Not for comfort, but to recognize that you and I are on a rescue mission. We are not living here on earth for comforts. We are living here on earth for a purpose. The purpose is through our lives, God's name would be glorified. Let me read to you a statement from C.S. Lewis. It's a rather, maybe a paragraph from C.S. Lewis, which I'm always challenged by during Christmas time. This is what he writes. He says, lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for the moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. Some of us love dogs very much. Some don't. If it would help all the dogs in the world to become like men, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you be willing to put down your human nature Leave your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, your art, your literature, your music, 
and choose instead of the intimate communion with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak? Would you be willing to do that? No, never in a million years. <laughs> but Christ, by becoming man, limited the thing which to him was the most precious thing in the world, his unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father. He was willing to do that. Now, this morning, God is not asking us to become dogs. All that God is asking us is, would we allow him to move into the neighborhood so that the neighborhood would see Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When people talk about God, they always point upwards, isn't it? But it's not upwards. He's here with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And that is what the world is looking to see. A tangible evidence of the presence of God. And that is why God has left you and me here on earth. That is why God has left the church here on earth. So that we will be visible demonstrators of who God really is. When the people look at the church, what do they say? They see us fighting among ourselves. They say, hey, this is what it is all about. No. They have to say, see how they love one another. That is an expression, the visible, tangible expression of God moving into our neighborhood. Now, what's the implications of this? A couple of things. Number one, the first implication is that Jesus is here. He's not up there. He is here. The story is told of a couple of soldiers who were involved in a war front and everybody was dying all around, somewhat lying injured. And here's a guy who is writhing in pain, who is crying out to and saying, where the hell is God? Where is God? And then they saw a Red Cross guy coming out with a stretcher. And the other guy who had heard him crying out, where the hell is God? He says, there is a God. No, there is a God. No. Now, Jesus is here. When the world is crying in the midst of the suffering and the turmoil and the hardships and the heartaches, when the world is crying, where is God? You and I, who go through those same hardships and experience the presence of God, becomes a visible reminder to the world that God is still there. That his love and presence is still the supporting person in our lives. Jesus came in the midst of the loneliness and the horror of a world that has gone mad. And in the midst of the chaos and confusion, Jesus announced that God is here. And that's the message of Christmas that God has given to us. The world is crying, where is God? Can I see the tangible evidence of God? God has placed you and I here so that they would see it. Would we rise up to the occasion and say, here am I, Lord. Send me into the neighborhood so that they can see Secondly, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. The literal translation of John 1.14 is actually that which is open to view, that which is unconcealed, that which is transparent. In fact, the Moffat's translation of the Bible, this word is translated as reality. So when the Bible speaks about you know, 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was full of grace and reality. He was real. He was transparent. You, know? you could talk with him. You could reason with him. You could ask him questions. He was a real person. He was not an idea. And for that, he was willing to be with his people. Individuals all around us want transparency. They are looking for people who would be real. They are looking for people who would not have a show. They are looking for individuals who will be able to sit with them and talk with them, listen to them, be real in the midst of all that they are going through. That is what God asks us to do. Thirdly, Jesus wants us to be involved. He wants us to be involved. Okay. Jesus is not like a distant relative whom you meet once in a way. For some people, Christmas service is like that, isn't it? You know, once in a way they come in to say hello to God. You know, but no, Jesus wants us to be involved. When God became man, you know, He's saying, "I want to get into an intimate relationship with you." So, if in case you're here this morning, wondering is God way up there? No, He's down here. If He's down here, can I know Him? Yes, you can know Him. And the message of Christmas is basically saying, "Get real." Spend time with me. Get into an intimate relationship with me. Because I have an open house. I'm transparent. Get into a close, intimate walk with me. But our hearts be open this morning and say, Lord, if you left heaven's glory and became a man, I would never even dream of becoming a dog also, even much as I love dogs. But if you were willing to leave heaven's glory and become a man, because you want to get involved with me, who am I? That I would put a wall. Who am I who would say, keep away. I don't want you in my life. So if you are the one this morning who is saying, God, I put a wall around you. Would you this morning break down those walls? Because God wants to be involved. In ways that you have never dreamt possible. Rooms that you have shut off and said, hey, this room belongs to me. Break down those walls and say, God, I hand over total of my life to you. And God will transform your life because he wants to be totally involved. Fourthly, when word becomes flesh, implication is Jesus identifies with our pain. Jesus identifies with our pain. In the act of becoming human, he identified with our pain. The pain of loneliness, he felt it. The pain of rejection and hurt, he felt it. The sadness of losing a loved one to death, he felt it. The scars of mental or physical abuse, he felt it. When Jesus became a man, he understood us. He identified with us. He felt our pain. And when the Bible tells us there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, the nature that he took upon himself... When he came down to earth, he continues to have that human nature of feelings. He feels with us when we go through pain. So this morning, if you're going through pain and suffering and saying, where is God? He's there. He feels with you. And when the world is crying and saying, hey, I'm going through so much pain. You and I are called to be the individuals. We have been comforted in our pain God says, go and comfort them in their pain. That is moving into the neighborhood. Fifthly, Jesus offers grace. Jesus 
offers grace. The one gift we all need for all of eternity is grace. Undeserved favor from God. And that's the one thing that God is also asking us to do this morning. Even this morning as we have been listening to God's word, maybe the Lord has brought some individuals into your life. Individuals whom you have put a wall and say, I don't want to get close. I don't want to get hurt. Maybe this morning God is saying, would you be willing to break down those walls? Would you be willing to trust me? Would you be willing to get close so that this individual for whom I died would be able to see the very life of God in me? Would you be, in that sense, Jesus to your neighborhood? If you are willing to do that, this Christmas, this coming year, will definitely be different. Let me close with this statement by Charles Swindoll in his book, Growing Strong. This is what he writes. Some gifts you can give this Christmas are beyond monetary value. What are the gifts that you can give so that you can be Jesus in your neighborhood? Mend a quarrel. Dismiss suspicion. Tell someone I love you. Give something away anonymously. Forgive someone who has treated you wrong. Turn away wrath with a soft answer. Visit someone in a nursing home. Apologize if you were wrong. Be especially kind to someone with whom you work with. Give as God gave to you in Christ. Without obligation or an announcement or a reservation or with hypocrisy. If we learn to be generous, grace to individuals who don't deserve. Why? Because we didn't deserve any of that grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And Jesus this morning is saying, would you be willing to move into the neighborhood and show to this world what grace and truth is all about? But that will happen only if you're willing not to live in closed, shielded walls. But to live in a tent, be willing to be open and transparent. And God, by his grace alone, would be able to use our feeble lives as a witness for his glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer.